0: We have the privilege as we do each week to turn our attention again to the Word of God. And we are turning again to Mark chapter 9 this morning, so I invite you to turn your Bibles there with me. In the last week, we saw Jesus shine a spotlight on faith as the instrument or the open door, if you will, of God's work in our lives. We saw that as He healed a boy after his father had cried out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. we saw it as Jesus called his disciples to a life of faith expressed through prayer. Now, today, though, we are returning to what really is the main theme of this second half of Mark. For the third time in 40 verses, Jesus brings up the subject of his death and resurrection. And what we'll realize is something of a pattern is that when Jesus brings this subject up, Mark almost immediately exposes the contrast between Jesus' expectation of suffering and death and his disciples' expectations of status and reward. And it's these expectations that lead Jesus to address today two great reversals in the kingdom of heaven. Now I'm reading a little bit longer portion here, but follow along as we begin in verse 30 and read to the end of chapter 9. This is God's Word. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would use it in our hearts and our lives this morning for the sake of your son, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Now, there's a funny thing about serving and associating with the lowly. Few people want to do it. Few people expect others to do it. Those who do it are often scorned while they're doing it. And yet, such commitment does often earn honor and respect in the end. I was thinking about this, the life of Father Damien, a priest in Honolulu in the 19th century. Now, some of you may say, well, serving in Honolulu, that doesn't sound like sacrifice and service for the sake of Christ. But... Father Damien learned in the mid-1800s that shiploads of men and women were being sent to a leper colony on another of Hawaii's islands. And he determined to go, and then he spent the next 16 years of his life on this leper colony, personally bandaging their festering wounds with his own hands building the coffins that those who died were buried in, and ministering daily to those suffering with this repulsive disease. In December of 1884, the community's love for him reached new heights when he began his daily homily with the words, we lepers, for he too had contracted the disease that he had spent so many years caring for. Now, few to none were willing to go with Father Damien. Many certainly thought he was a fool to go. But you might know that every state has two statues representing it in the U.S. Capitol building. And when Hawaii became a state in 1959, they chose Father Damien as one of the two statues to represent them. And this pattern of, of honor for sacrificial lowly service is just a small picture of the main point that Jesus is making to his disciples today because in the face of their expectations for status and reward, Jesus introduces a pair of great reversals in the kingdom of heaven, affirming that lowliness, not greatness, is the path to glory in the kingdom of heaven, while promoting self and sin now will bring us low in judgment in the end. I want to look at this pair of reversals each in turn. We'll start with verses 30 to 41 which focus on the first great reversal, that lowliness rather than greatness is the path to reward in the kingdom of heaven. First off, we see Christ establishing the pattern himself. Jesus has been with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi for most of the last chapter and a half, and if you know your geography, you know that Caesarea Philippi is all the way in the very northern corner of Israel. It was there in Caesarea Philippi that Peter first confessed Jesus as the Christ. And it was there in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus first announced his coming death and resurrection to the disciples. And since that time, what we will notice as we go through the rest of Mark is that Jesus slowly but steadily works his way south from Caesarea Philippi through Galilee, through Judea, and to Jerusalem, where he will fulfill what he is foretelling. But in these verses, they're making the roughly 25 mile walk through Galilee. And on the way, Jesus again brings up the topic of his rejection, death, and resurrection. Interestingly, in chapter 8, Jesus focused on the fact that his rejection would come at the hands of the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees of Israel. Here, he seems to focus more broadly on mankind as a whole. The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. In other words, Jesus' emphasis seems to be that the son of man, the one that you will remember Daniel 7 said would receive dominion in a kingdom that all men, all mankind would serve him. Well, this son of man is first going to be delivered into the hands of men to be killed by them. Christ is explaining here, I think, the pattern that Hebrews twelve two draws our attention to. That Christ is going to endure the cross and despise the shame as the path to glory or greatness at the right hand of God that awaited him. In other words, Christ sets the example first, showing us that lowliness and suffering leads to resurrection and glory in the kingdom of heaven. But we're told that the disciples still don't understand what Jesus is saying. In other words, apparently, the third time was not the charm for the disciples here. they are still in the dark as to what Jesus means. But Christ moves now to call his disciples to the same pattern he was setting for them. When they arrive in Capernaum, which has been the location for so much of Jesus' ministry here in Mark, Jesus asks them a question. And I sort of picture Jesus leaning back casually in his chair and saying, so, guys, what were you talking about on the road today? Of course, Jesus knows perfectly well what they were talking about. It's kind of like what happens with parents. You know, parents, you're downstairs and your kids have no idea that you can hear everything they're saying through the vent that goes up to their room. And of course, kids, we know what it's like when we realize the embarrassment of that thing we were telling each other about uh, 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 something we wanted to be a secret or maybe was exposing our sinfulness or selfishness has been heard by our parents. And that's the boat the disciples are in because on the road, the subject of their conversation was, which of us is going to be the greatest and the most important when Jesus restores the kingdom of heaven? The dissonance between Christ's example in verses 30 to 32 and the disciples' example in verses 33 and 34 is meant to jar us. Complete self-sacrifice right next to complete self-promotion. But I would wager that the disciples' conversation, as jarring and as odd at odds with Jesus' example as it is, is probably completely at home in our own hearts, too. So we should be quick to listen to Jesus' words. Jesus, we're told, immediately sat down and called his disciples. Now, sitting down in the first century was the posture of a teacher. So when Jesus sits down, it's, a, it's a, an announcement, if you will, that class is in session and the, the disciples should gather around and listen to what he has to say. And Jesus' message is simple. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Here's the great reversal. In the kingdom of heaven, striving for greatness, honor, and status for yourself will lead you to be last. But giving yourself to serve To be the last and the least here on earth leads to reward. Now, right away, we need to make a clarification. Jesus here is not introducing a new and better way to greatness for yourself. It's not as if Jesus is saying, you know, these people tell you you'll be awesome if you do this, but actually you'll be really awesome if you do this instead. Uh, A few of us in the fall were talking about the fact that servant leadership is actually in vogue in many business training programs right now. But in these business training programs, the model of servant leadership is billed as a way to achieve success, get the most out of your employees, and lead the most profitable business. In other words, servant leadership, as described by these business training models, is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is talking about. Because instead... Jesus is saying that we are to make our goal throughout life here on this earth service, sacrifice, and lowliness because that's God's call to us and Christ's example for us. And the consistent message of Scripture is that obeying this call of Christ, losing our lives in this world for Christ's sake in the Gospels is the path to recognition in the kingdom of heaven. But you'll notice that like any good teacher, Jesus doesn't just state the principle. He immediately sets before them an object lesson. And you can imagine Jesus, he's on the floor, the disciples are gathered around them, but they're in a house, and Jesus sees a child over in the house. And so he summons the child and puts the child in the midst of them. And as he puts the child in the midst of them, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I think to understand this, we have to remember that the first century was not a child-centric society like ours was. Children were not held up uh, in the same way, but rather children had a future, but until then they were the least powerful and the least significant. And Jesus' point is to say, if you want to receive me, the promised Christ, you're not going to do so by moving with those who really matter in this world. No, you're going to do so by receiving, honoring, and caring for the least important in this world, like this child in front of you. It must have been a sobering lesson for the disciples after their conversation on the road. But verses 38 to 41 bring another incident which reveals that they still didn't get the point. Perhaps the mention of receiving Christ sparked John's memory, but it leads him to report another uh, event to Jesus. He says, "'Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us.'" Now, every indication is that John and the disciples think they did the right thing in trying to silence this rogue guy who was trying to mooch off Jesus' name but wasn't part of them. But again, Jesus rebukes his disciples. He says, do not stop him for no one can do a mighty work in my name and soon after speak evil of me. The one who is not against us is for us. See, I think the disciples' concern here is that this guy isn't one of us. He's not part of the circle, but he's trying to do the things that Jesus, you gave us to do. But Jesus' reply is to say, the key isn't being part of us. The key isn't being in with the 12. The key is whether you're following me and whether someone is doing ministry in my name. And here we are, right back to the point that we started with. The point is not status and promotion and in crowd. The point is following Christ. And Jesus extends the point even further. He's forget healings and exorcisms. He says even giving a cup of water... In the name of Christ, will be rewarded. See, here we are, serving others because of Jesus. Even little ones in the eyes of this world, even in small ways, will bring reward in the kingdom of heaven. Because that's the nature of the first great reversal. Maybe we could pause for just a minute and evaluate our hearts. This passage clearly warns us against pride in promoting ourselves in this life. The disciples, however, seemed to think that their responses were perfectly reasonable in the situations, exposing the way they were really thinking about themselves. And my guess is that our pride shows its true colors and reveals the way we think about ourselves as well. Winston Churchill was a man whose leadership I greatly admire in many ways. But R.C. Sproul shares a time when Churchill had a verbal argument with one of his servants. And reportedly, he chewed out that servant with harsh and uh, angry words. Finally, the servant had had enough, so the servant talked back to Churchill in the same tone and words that Churchill was using with him. And Churchill was, was stunned, and he said to the servant, who do you think you are to talk to me like that? And the servant said, well, Sir Winston, I was just using the words you used to talk to me. And Churchill thought for a moment and looked at the servant and said, yes, But I am a very great man. And you see, Churchill's pride and consideration of himself showed through. I think it was undoubtedly a low moment for Churchill. But how many times have my words or my responses revealed that I am more concerned with myself or my recognition or my comfort than I would care to admit? And Jesus here cuts the legs out from under such pride. But I want you to notice that Jesus calls us to more than just an attitude of humility. I think most of us are willing to recognize that an attitude of humility rather than arrogance is our call. But Jesus goes beyond that. He calls us to a lifestyle. See, Jesus, I think, is saying we aren't just supposed to be deferential or kind in our manner. We are to associate with the lowly, the poor, the outcast the insignificant in the world's eyes and give ourselves to serve them. Of course, what does the world say? The world would tell us that it's not worth our time to associate with the poor and the outcast. The world would tell us that if we're going to be good stewards of our time, we should be doing other things. The world would tell us that their, their poverty is probably their own fault anyways. This is the language with the, which with the world would respond. But Jesus says, no, whoever receives even an insignificant child and gives them a cup of water in my name will not lose their reward. We are to pursue and serve the needy, not because that saves us, not because that's the central mission of the church. This isn't Jesus devolving into social gospel here. We are to do it as fruit of our faith and an obedience to Christ's call and example. Okay, so how do we start? Well, I would hope that there might be some among us that will be called to a life of sacrifice and world missions. But most likely, you're not going to start by getting up tomorrow and going as the next Mother Teresa or Adoniram Judson. No, you're going to start by faithfully noticing the poor and the needy around you and quietly serving them. Not acting for yourself, but doing it without recognition for Christ's sake. And when we are faithful with little, the Lord often calls us to be faithful in much. Well, maybe you say, well, that's all well and good, but how do I deal with the pride and ambition that keeps rearing its head in my life? Can I encourage you to consider Psalm 131? Remember what David writes there? He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. O Israel, hope in the Lord. You know how babies are when they are still nursing and not yet weaned, always crying for food and rooting around for their next snack. But a weaned child can rest calmly in its mother's arms. It has no need to anxiously wonder when they will be fed again for it's full and satisfied and in a similar way as we look in faith to the glory of the lord and behold his steadfast love for us we have salvation we've been rescued from sin and suffering and are secure for all eternity in him we don't need anything anymore we can stop seeking great things for ourselves we don't need anything this world has to offer we can rest quietly in the hope that we have in Christ instead and spend our lives for the last and the least here on this earth. That is, after all, Christ's example and Christ's call. And as we follow him, we trust that for us too, this first great reversal will be true. But I want to go on now. We'll spend less time here, but we need to look in verses 42 to 50 as Jesus gives us a second great reversal that goes the opposite way. While those who receive little ones in this life will receive their reward in the kingdom of heaven, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble or to sin will receive such punishment in the life to come that would make certain inescapable death by being thrown in the ocean with a several-ton millstone slung around our neck appear desirable." Now, we might ask, well, what exactly does Jesus mean by causing one of these little ones to stumble or to sin? And it seems to refer to leading them away from faith in Christ, to tempting them or emboldening them to sin. Surely it would include the scribes and the Pharisees who used their influence to convince even the poor in Jerusalem to reject Jesus and put him on the cross. Surely it would include ivory tower theologians who scoff at the simple interpretations of Scripture and would attack the faith once delivered to the saints with an intellectual elitism that may sound wise to this world, but is foolishness to God and draws away the hearts of many from their trust in His Word. Surely it would include those who twist Scripture to justify culturally acceptable sins at the expense of God's character and God's Word, so that some would be emboldened to sin thanks to the influence and the twisting of Scripture. Surely it would include those leaders in the church or the family who run roughshod over God's sheep, either in sexual or spiritual abuse, and so distort God's character into something wicked that it drives them away from Christ. Surely it would include those who use their influence to persuade little ones to sin in ways that benefit the leader, telling them that they will be helping their ministry and honoring God in that sin. And we could keep going, but Jesus' point is clear. Causing another person to sin never benefits me, even if it might appear to promote my success or my control right now because it is a millstone around my neck yielding devastating punishment for all eternity. But then Jesus goes on. He goes on to affirm that not just leading others to sin, but also engaging in sin ourselves, sinning in ways that might seem to do us good or promote my comfort or success or benefit now will result in eternity of hellfire that never dies away. This is really the essence of temptation, isn't it? Finding ourselves convinced that sin will do some good for me right now when God tells us otherwise in His Word. think you can put anything you want into that blank. Responding in anger. Holding on to bitterness. Looking at pornography or engaging in sexual pleasure outside of marriage. Cheating on a test. Stealing even something small. Pursuing money as the thing that will make me happy here. We believe, at least for a moment, that these things will benefit us. But Jesus says, no. The just consequences for sin are so dire that it would be better for you to cut off your hand or pluck out your eye than to preserve your body now and end up in hell for all eternity. Of course, I think when we read these words... We understand that Jesus is not telling us that we should all keep a good pair of name brand eye pluckers around just in case the moment needs us. No, no, what he's telling us is that this life, nothing in this life is worth a grain of sand compared to the consequences for eternity. And the second great reversal here is reminding us that continuing to commit or enjoy or encourage sin in ourselves and others in this life will lead to unquenchable fire for eternity and the next life. Now, the word for hell that's used here is Gehenna, which refers to a valley outside of Jerusalem where wicked kings had conducted child sacrifices during the years of Manasseh and and other kings. And in order to make sure it had never happened again, King Josiah desecrated this ravine by turning it into a garbage dump carcasses and garbage from Jerusalem were dumped there and a fire was kept going there to keep the piles of garbage down. That's Jesus' visual image of what hell will be like, a constantly burning garbage dump. And Jesus adds to this description by quoting Isaiah sixty-six twenty-four, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, an eternal fire of torment and an outpouring of God's wrath against sin. Now, I would be willing to guess that hell is probably the most uncomfortable topic in Scripture for any of us to think about. But Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven, so we dare not shy away from it. I would suspect that most of us probably don't spend much time thinking about hell, but ask yourself this question, God constantly affirms all throughout Scripture that hell is real. Do you believe that? And Scripture constantly affirms that this hell is the justly earned destination of every single person, including us, on our own merits, because of our sin. Do you believe that? If so, then we can't gloss over these verses We have to stare them in the face. I was thinking about an illustration of the importance of this, and I thought since my opinions on coffee, chocolate, and cats are all public knowledge, by this point I thought I should add another C to the list. Coconut. I despise coconut. But see, my deep dislike for coconut all goes back to a particular coconut eggnog pie that I was served and did not sit well with me. And every time I think about this coconut eggnog pie... I am renewed in my resolve to never, ever touch even one shaving of coconut again in my life. Now, it's a good question, but this, of course, is petty. Hell is serious. But for just such a reason, think regularly on the eternal pains of hell. Because it is thinking about the reality of hell that Jesus describes here that will increase our hatred of sin until we say it is worth any price to cut off sin in my life rather than end up in hell. It it is thinking on hell that will guard you against temptations which would try to entice you and say, oh, this sin is worth it for what you gain right now. And Christ's words remind us that no, it is never worth the just consequences for eternity. It is these words that will convince us of how desperately we need Christ because only a perfect and righteous man who was willing to take the punishment we deserved could rescue us from this fate. Only the Spirit of God poured out on us could change our hearts and our wills to reverse course. But that's the redemption Christ has accomplished for us. He's rescued us from these verses and given us eternal life in the presence of God instead. And so let these descriptions of hell sit in our minds and draw you to faith in Christ and increase your love for Christ. Let even these horrible verses bear such beautiful spiritual fruit in your hearts and your lives. Because these are words that Jesus has given us. Well, finally, right at the end, verses 49 and 50, end our passage with three brief statements about fire and salt. And to be honest, I'm not exactly sure what these verses mean. The Greek manuscripts we have contain a number of variations as to what the exact wording is. And there's great debate as to whether these verses express one thought, two thoughts, or three thoughts. And every single commentator I read either interpreted them differently or just ignored them. I think it's clear that they have something to do with enduring fire, possibly trials and suffering and with maintaining our our righteousness, particularly the righteousness of being at peace with one another as a testimony to the world. But beyond that, I'm going to echo the words of J.C. Ryle, who I quote often. When he came to these verses, Ryle concluded, I have no idea what these verses mean, so I guess I will wait until the Lord appears to tell me what they say. But as we come to an end, I think we have plenty that is quite clear. Because these texts present us with a common thread, which is this. Consider God's perspective, not this world's perspective. Because this world and the kingdom of heaven are related to one another in a pair of great reversals. In God's eyes, nothing is greater than the life of a servant lived in lowliness without recognition. But in God's eyes... Nothing is more heinous than our sin in causing others to sin. And so as we end this morning, may we be a servant of others in the name of Christ. And may we hate sin and anything that would lead another to sin with all the energy of those who know the eternal consequences that await and long instead to seek Christ and what he's called us to. Let's pray. Father, And we thank You yet again for this text of Your Word. And how I pray that we would put our faith in You, in such a Savior who alone has rescued us from these pains of hell that You describe here. And how I pray that we would follow You in living as last and least of all now to serve others in the name of Christ, that You might receive glory and that we might be with you in the kingdom of heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.